Hi, I'm Keith Scully. I've been a wildlife filmmaker for too long to me to remember. Um, I'm now a director of Silverback Films, who um, made the film David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. Hi, I'm Colin Butfield. I work for the UK branch of World Wildlife Fund. I'm an executive director there. And I was uh, one of the executive producers on David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. I am David Attenborough, and I am 93. I've had the most extraordinary life. It's only now that I appreciate how extraordinary. The living world is a unique and spectacular marvel. Yet the way we humans live on Earth is sending it into a decline. Human beings have overrun the world. We're replacing the wild with the tame. This film is my witness statement and my vision for the future. The story of how we came to make this our greatest mistake. And how, if we act now, we can yet put it right. planet is headed for disaster. We need to learn how to work with nature rather than against it. And I'm going to tell you how. That is the trailer for the Netflix documentary, David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. And this is Factual America. Factual America is produced by Alamo Pictures, a production company specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for an international audience. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood, and every week we look at America through the lens of documentary filmmaking by interviewing filmmakers and experts on the American experience. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, to find out where you can see our films, and to connect with our team. Sir David Attenborough is a broadcast legend, and probably no individual has seen as much of the Earth's wilderness as he has in his illustrious, nearly 70-year career. In David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet, Keith Scully of Silverback Films and Colin Butfield of the World Wildlife Fund bring us Sir David's witness statement, and they also provide us with simple solutions to saving our planet. We caught up with Keith and Colin from their homes in Bristol and Surrey, England. Keith Scully and Colin Butfield, welcome to Factual America. Keith, how are things with you in Bristol? Pretty good, pretty good. Obviously, you know, times are strange. And, yeah. um, you know, we've, we've got through the coronavirus first round in the spring pretty well. But um, times are changing again. So um, let's wait and see. Uh, indeed. Um, yes, yeah, so on the drive over here, I think the radio was full of just all the news around Europe in terms of all the new lockdowns and 
and the such. Uh, Colin, uh, you're also here in the UK. Uh, how are things with you? Yeah, things are pretty good with me, actually. Thanks. Um, we've got, um, I mean, same thing, weird world at those times, all the rest of it. Um, we're in quite, I'm in quite a small town, so it's not so locked down as, as other parts. But um, yeah, all good. Thank you. Good okay. to be on. Well, well, thanks again for coming on. Uh, the, the film is, uh, we've just uh, listened to the, uh, the trailer, is uh, David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet, uh, described as a preemptive eulogy for the earth by the Times of London. Uh, it's one of the top films on Netflix, was certainly in the top 10 when I was watching it last night. Uh, had viewings with Prince William and his family. Uh, the media is alive, certainly in this country, uh, about talking about it being a tearjerker and uh, quite an emotional uh, film for many. Uh, so again, thanks for coming on to the show. It's, oh, I should would be remiss to, uh, if I didn't say, um, it's on Netflix, everyone, uh, released on October 4th after a limited cinema release in late September. So, uh, Keith, now... Um, Maybe, uh, for those who haven't had a chance to see it yet, uh, could you give us a little, little synopsis of the film? It's very much David Attenborough's witness statement. Um, we came up with the idea with David because we had just finished doing a series called Our Planet on Netflix. And we realized that actually all the kind of big changes that have happened to the world, the really significant ones, have all happened in David's lifetime. And we just thought, wow, that's, that's extraordinary. This is a guy who's probably seen more of the world than any other human that's ever lived. Let's hear what he has to think about what he's witnessed, what he's seen, and crucially, what he thinks we should do now. And okay. that's really what the film's about. All right. And this is going to sound like a funny question since it's for three guys, uh, three blokes here in the UK. Uh, but uh, we do have an international audience. Um, and I've been aware of Sir David Attenborough for a long time. I even, uh, growing up in, in Texas in high school, we, you know, we saw some of his uh, documentaries then, and, and I'm not a young, young man anymore. Um, but Colin, maybe you can tell us a little bit about who is Sir David Attenborough for those who have maybe been, uh, you know, maybe even a younger audience who doesn't know. No, it's, it, it's a great question. I've met I've many friends in other parts of the world where um, some of David's series have been dubbed by other actors, so they don't, they don't necessarily know him so well. Um, but they, I mean, what a lot of people don't know about David is he's so much more than a presenter and voiceover artist. He mm. grew up really, really deeply understanding the natural world. He's huge interest in, um, in um, anthropology and uh, in geology, collected fossils at a young age, studied biology and natural sciences, real genuine, understander and curiosity of a wealth of different sciences and then he really kicked off the whole of natural history broadcasting by getting what must have been the most incredible gig in tv history which is <laughs> you know at a time when nobody had gone overseas to make natural history programs he basically got told go spend three months somewhere exotic finding stuff and record it for, for, for audiences and and he did that he absolutely pioneered it along with his crew so um he has quite literally been filming, recording, experiencing the natural world for 60 years. And if you're British, um, as I am, he's routinely rated as the most trusted human being in our country um, because he's got an unparalleled knowledge of what he talks about and he never overstates the facts, which is, I think, why 
this film has been so powerful for so many. And has resonated, yes. I think we'll get to a, a bit more on that in a, in a few minutes. But I think uh, in terms of your, that first part of uh, that, that answer of yours, um, I think we have a little clip we can show uh, or listen to for those, um, uh, for our listeners. It's basically, um, I think it's about a 50-second clip that basically talks about, uh, shows his, got some great archival footage and uh, talks about uh, getting his start in this industry and uh, what he called the best time of my life. So let's uh, listen to that clip now. Wherever I went, there was wilderness, sparkling coastal seas, vast forests, immense grasslands, you could fly for hours over the untouched wilderness. And there I was, actually being asked to explore these places and record the wonders of the natural world for people back home. And to begin with, it was quite easy. People had never seen pangolins before on television. They'd never seen sloths before. They'd never seen the centre of New Guinea before. It was the best time of my life. All right, so he says that uh, that was the best time of, of his life, but uh, I think he, I mean, right after that, at the end of, at the, right after the end of that clip, he says it was the best time of our lives. Um, and Keith, I mean, you've been a longtime collaborator of his. his he's not nearly as long as his career, obviously, but uh, he's nearly been, uh, it's what, nearly 70 years on. And uh, where do we find ourselves now? Um, what did he mean by those were the best times of our lives? And well, where, you know, you know I, 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 I have a bit of understanding. Obviously, I'm a little bit younger than David. Uh, he's 94 now. Um, yeah. But um, when I grew, I grew up as a kid in Kenya. And um, in the 60s, and my parents liked to go out on safari and, and mm. see the wildness. And, and Kenya in the 60s was just like paradise. I mean, the wildlife and everything was utterly incredible. And this was the sort of, this was the stage that David traveled the world on. He, he was there when most of the wildlife of our world, the great wilderness of the world, was still very much intact. Yeah. And in, you know, the things you could see were just absolutely amazing. And I just caught the back end of David's kind of front yeah. end of his career. So um, it must have been just amazing for him, um, traveling to places like Borneo that had been hardly untouched. Yeah. And um, East Africa was in fantastic case. The Amazon was hardly untouched. So he, he really saw the pristine natural world at that mm. time. I think, yeah, you mentioned Borneo. I mean, I think there's even a little, um, some archival in there about uh, even meeting up with a tribe that had never had any contact with the outside world. And yeah, that was, that's early 70s, you know. Yeah, that was in New Guinea, actually. Oh, New yeah. Guinea, and, yeah. And New, New Guinea, but you could still in the 70s, you could still go to places on this world. And uh, at the same time, we were putting a man on the moon you could still meet people who had had no contact with Western civilization, yeah. none whatsoever. And see, I, 
I'm a little I'm a little younger than you. I'm sure I'm older than uh, Colin, but I remember like National Geographic's or the youth version of it coming in the 70s, and they'd have these whole spreads about this tribe in in New Guinea that you had not, you know, no one had encountered before. It was that you know, and this is that's only 50 years ago. Um, now, why, Keith? Uh, since you know um, uh, David so well, I mean, why this film and why now? You said you you know you've it was in uh, you talking with him and he wanted to do the film, but uh, why not sooner? Why, you know, I, I think maybe there's obvious reasons why not any, any delaying this anymore, but. Um, you know, we'd been on the same journey um, for the last 30 years, at least where, when I got into wildlife filming, we were worried about species going extinct. We we're worried about losing rhinos and elephants. And then um, sort of in the nineties, we started to see whole habitats look threatened. Mm. And then um, after you know, 2000 and what have you, and I remember talking to David about, about this, there was this sudden change when the whole world seemed to become fundamentally unstable. It, wasn't, mm. it was no longer species. It was no longer about habitat. It was just the whole thing seemed to be falling off the, the rails. And, and David felt very, very deeply that, you know, having witnessed this, having almost been a broadcast through it all and not letting the world know, he desperately wanted to let the world know that we were in an extraordinary dangerous moment. And that was the inspiration of the film. Okay. I think that brings us to a good point um, to see or listen to another clip. Um, One where uh, he talks a lot about biodiversity, which is, I think... I don't remember hearing about biodiversity when I was growing up, but it is certainly something that my children talk a lot about now, uh, my teenagers. Um, And it's also one where he talks about this being his witness statement. So um, let's uh, let's listen to that now um, and see what Sir David actually has to say. The living world is a unique and spectacular marvel. Billions of individuals of millions of kinds of plants and animals, dazzling in their variety and richness. Working together to benefit from the energy of the sun and the minerals of the earth. Leading lives that interlock in such a way that they sustain each other. We rely entirely on this finely tuned life support machine. And it relies on its biodiversity to run smoothly. Yet the way we humans live on Earth now is sending biodiversity into a decline. The natural world is fading. The evidence is all around. It's happened in my lifetime. I've seen it with my own eyes. This film is my witness statement and my vision for the future. The story of how we came to make this our greatest mistake and how, if we act now, we can yet put it right. So, uh, Colin, we've just listened to that, uh, that uh, clip about uh, biodiversity. Um, I mean, I, I highly recommend the film, obviously. Um, 
I sat down with my family and watched it last night. Um, so I don't want to, we don't want to go through the whole rehash the whole film. I just, you know, people should go and, and watch it. Uh, I'm sure you would agree, but um, basically, let's kind of cut to the chase. What happens if we we don't do anything? Um, well, I think we've got two things happening at exactly the same time. So, on the one hand, we're shrinking biodiversity, as as David talks about in the film, the single most important component for keeping the planet stable. Um, and and I think as the rate we're losing it is extraordinary. I mean, one stat that springs to mind was that um, we've lost sixty eight percent of average wildlife populations since the nineteen seventies. So my lifetime, we've lost on average 68% of wildlife populations. So extraordinary decline. Um, and that has often been considered as something that's a bit sad. You know, it's not it's, it mm. feels a bit sad for those animals that we've lost. But actually what we're trying to show here is that it's destabilizing the planet. It's absolutely destabilizing everything we rely on. And of course, what's happening hand in hand with that is climate change. Mm. Um, the climate, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, has changed incredibly fast, particularly over the last couple of decades. And actually the fact that the ocean's been absorbing so much of, 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 of the excess heat and carbon means that we've actually masked that impact. So it's likely to continue to accelerate. Those two things happening at the same time will create an, a destabilized planet where, to be honest, I mean, one, I mean the, probably the scariest thought in all of this is human civilizations have only existed on this stable planet that we've had for about 10, 11,000 years in the Holocene. Yeah. We have stabilized it so much. There's a real question. We've never tried to exist in these conditions before. Um, and that's the challenge. We're having an unstable planet at the time we're putting the greatest demands on it. Mm. So, and I think, I, I think that's a point the film makes, makes quite well. I mean... You mentioned the Holocene, this 10, 000, 10 to 11,000 year period that we've had. And also, um, you also make mention of these previous mass uh, extinctions that, yeah. that have happened. Um, but let's, I mean, uh, and, and the, there's a segment of the film about, I guess, 45, 50 minutes in where uh, Sir David talks about what someone born now, what they could possibly expect to see in their lifetime. Um, and we won't go through all that, but even just thinking in terms of the 2030s, which is as little as 10 years away, um, he talks about the Amazon rainforest, and we've already got like, what the Brazilian wetlands uh, have already a quarter of it's been lost this year from from wildfires, you know, things like that. Uh, the Arctic, the ice free in the summer. I mean, are these that timeline that he put, paints out? Is that if we don't do apps? if we do absolutely nothing or if we, even if we carry on with the few little things we've been starting to do, is this, you know, this is, is that how likely is that really to happen? Um, so the, the points you make about the Amazon, the Arctic are extraordinarily realistic within the next decade that we'll pass a tipping point where mm. they become irrecoverable. Now that doesn't mean the, the Amazon, for example, has completely disappeared within a decade. It means that we're past the point where we can turn turn off that system, where we can stop the decline. It would ultimately, in the case of the Amazon, it would have lost so much moisture, it would ultimately be in a tipping point towards perpetual decline. Same with the Arctic sea ice. So yeah, I'm afraid that it's completely realistic and it's on the trajectory that we are currently on. Now that said, people are starting to take steps, particularly with regard to climate change and renewable energy. There is still time to turn this off and change it, but yeah, on current trajectory, you will pass tipping points within a decade. 
Uh, it's interesting you mentioned tipping point because that's it's in my notes here. Oh, uh, but no, 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 don't be sorry because I, it brings me uh, because you both uh, you both worked on our planet. Is that yes. is that correct? Right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that seemed to me that that came out in, on Netflix as well last year. Uh, it's one of my f- family was keen to watch um, and you show scenes from it in the uh, in the in this doc um, that was really I mean maybe Keith you can talk about this as well I mean that seemed to was that a, a bit of a change from what had been done before because it seemed to me that was really capturing this earth at a tipping point in yes. ways, sort of the scenes with the walruses and and that yeah. kind of stuff yeah no the, the whole idea of the all planet series was um Alistair Fothergill and I, who, who started Sil, Sil, Silback Films, we've made lots, we used to work with the BBC, we've made lots of landmark series like um, Planet Earth, Blue Planet, and four. But what we noticed was loads of people had watched them, millions of people, um, but we hadn't brought about change. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of our planet was we need to start to bring about change. That's why we teamed up with Colin and WWF, because uh, we, we, we thought together we, we stood a better chance of actually making a series that could both draw in a big audience and bring about change. And that's quite a tricky thing to do, because the school mm. of thought was, if you still talk about the doom and gloom of what's happening to the planet, you'll lose audience. Yeah. If you just talk about wildlife, you'll gain audience. So the idea of our planet was absolutely... To, to try through these powerful images of, of the, the natural world, also tell stories about change. Because we've realized that we're at this kind of crucial, you know, Colin talks about a tipping point. Humanity's at a tipping point mm-hmm. where we can either decide to fix this thing, which we can do, yeah. or we're just gonna let it go. And if we let it go, it runs out of control. And as Colin rightly says, human civilization, has no experience of existing in an out-of-control planet. And with COVID-19, we're just learning what that means because this yeah. is part of the process. And um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a really, really urgent thing to do. And we as journalists and communicators in this mm-hmm. area thought we have to do something and we have to do it quickly. And that spun off then the film with David. Okay, and I mean, there's a there's a point in the in the this doc where um, I think uh, David's being interviewed by Christine Lagarde, who's used to head the IMF yeah. and is president of the ECB, and she says, "You could happily retire." Why? Ha- I mean, it's, he's in his nineties, but he but he hasn't retired, and he still seems to be going strong. Um, is this what really is uh, keeping him going in terms of carrying on doing these these documentaries? I think, I mean, David's always going to keep going. I mean, that's the nature <laughs> of the man. You know, David, you know, you meet David and, and you, you just think, I mean, he's kind of, he's the mental age. He's about 50, 52, yeah. you know, yeah. in terms of how he thinks and how he does things. He's got no interest in retiring whatsoever. Yeah. And he also knows passionately that he has a voice. People will listen. People trust him. And he knows time's running out. So he's doing everything he can now okay. to help to make a difference and um, good on him. Yeah. Well, I mean, in th- I think in terms of making a difference, let's, let's talk about that. But we're going to have a, uh, a little break first. And as part of that break, um, we have a third and final clip that WWF has provided a- us with. Um, 
And it's uh, this one about um, an interesting one that we've talked about on this podcast before, the, uh, the power of the, the first time people really saw the image of the Earth from outer space. Uh, we, did a, we interviewed the filmmakers behind the Stuart Brand doc, and he was really big in the U.S. on bringing, um, well, getting NASA to release some of those images. And, and David talks, uh, David Attenborough talks about what it meant for him and what it meant for um, basically human humanity to see that there were there were actually limits to our Earth. So let's uh, let's listen to that clip, and we will be back shortly with uh, Colin and Keith. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. I was in a television studio when the Apollo mission launched. It was the first time that any human had moved away far enough from the Earth to see the whole planet. And this is what they saw. What we all saw. Our planet, vulnerable and isolated. One of the extraordinary things about it was that the world could actually watch it as it happened. Uh, it was extraordinary that you could see what a man out in space could see as he saw it at the same time. And I remember very well uh, that first shot. You saw a, a blue marble, a blue sphere in the blackness, and you realized that that was the Earth. And in that one shot, there was the whole of humanity with nothing else except the person that was in the spacecraft taking that picture. And that completely changed the mindset of the population, the human population of the world. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with Keith Scorley and Colin Butfield, co-director and producer of David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. Uh, the Guardian says Attenborough delivers a stark warning that time is ticking for the planet. Um, Keith or uh, Colin, either one, uh, for all this uh, talk about uh, people being scared to death and hiding behind their sofas at home watching this thing, I took a slightly different, uh, not slightly different, quite a different message from this. Um, I find uh, David seems relatively calm and hopeful actually. Um, and we've talked about this on the podcast before. We've uh, had an academic who's looked at inconvenient truth and what scare films can do in terms of backfiring and these sort of things. Um, but why is this time different? Do you think, um, is, and is that, I guess, the balance you, uh, you've already alluded to this, Keith, but the balance you were trying to strike in terms of, well, certainly in our planet, but now this film, uh, getting people to engage but not be so afraid that they turn off and don't do anything. I mean, the, the crazy thing of our times is the scientists have done the work. They've shown us the problems. 
and they've also shown us the solutions. It is very, very clear that we can get ourselves out of this mess. And everyone needs to know that. It is a not an, an inevitability that things are going to carry on and go badly wrong. Um, we know all the solutions. We know what we have to do. We just require now the will and the determination to do what needs to happen. And that has to be the message. People have to understand, no, it's, you know, we can get out of this thing, mm. but we haven't got a lot of time. If we're going to get out of it, we have to do it quickly. Yeah, and yeah. that is why the whole thing is, in my mind, so frustrating, but also so urgent. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me personally, I, I've, I remember I, I was working for a zoology professor, actually, uh, in, in the early 90s, having these discussions about global warming and, and these sort of things. And then I've, you know, lately I've been saying it's going to be Gen Z or Gen Z, depending on where you live, to, that's going to save the day. But it seems to me that we don't even have time to wait for them. Um, to, to start doing things. Um, Colin, uh, or both, is this, uh, is it about rewilding? Um, is it, uh, help us understand what we, I mean, I want to focus first of all, because I think many times as individuals, we kind of feel like we're powerless. Mm -hmm. so maybe what can individuals do um, to help? Um, well, I think the first bit of it picks on um, really the fact that as David's trying to say in the film, we're, we've got an ability suddenly to communicate with billions of people around the planet at the same time. Mm. Um, we know most of the solutions that we need for this. In some respects, it's a communications challenge rather than it being a scientific challenge. It's if enough people want this and enough people believe it's serious, turning the world around to do this is achievable. So the first thing really is all of our voices and things like that. But obviously people want to know practically what can I do every, every single day. Um, Obviously, it depends where we are and what lives we lead, but probably the single biggest three areas of impact each of us have is um, the, the emissions we generate, in particularly through the way we travel and the way we eat. Um, how, if we're fortunate enough to be in a position like in my country, it's mandated to have a pension if you're employed, how your money's saved and spent. Um, and the other one is um, what we waste. Um, and again, that's particularly prevalent to you know, countries like the US, the UK, we throw and waste so much of the resources we use, whether that's energy or food or materials. Um, so those things can turn things around very, very quickly as individuals. But actually, it's the systems change. It's the kind of viewing the world as finite, as you talked about and David showed in that, in that previous clip. Mm. And that mindset shift and, and, and way that we approach everything is, is fundamental to this. And, and, and it's very, very achievable. As Keith, as Keith said a few minutes ago, we can turn this around within a decade and we will gain an awful lot from it. Okay. I mean, I've even got my, I mean, I think the message is getting through to certain, certainly certain generations. I mean, my own daughter's doing her EPQ project and she wants to rewild her garden. Yeah. Um, so she was very keen on uh, watching last night. Um, but I mean, are there, I mean, while I've got you, are there, I think I've seen, are there things on your sites, uh, like links to your website that show what as individuals we can, we can do? in terms of helping. Yeah, definitely. I mean, re, re, it's interesting you say about your daughter and rewilding. I mean, nature is going to be the biggest ally that we have in all of this. The bringing back pollinators, bringing back trees, restoring the ocean, all of those things will not only bring the benefits they most obviously bring, bringing back those environments, but they yeah. also bring stability back to the planet. So restoring nature is probably the fundamental thing that each of us can do, and we can do it in, in, in different ways. Um, 
But the other one, of course, is reducing our impact on the climate. And that'll be different for each of us, whether it's the food yeah. we or the, or the way we fly or, or travel. And I guess COVID has shown, and if there's a, a silver lining, is that if the world puts its mind to it, it can it can do a lot of things. It can, you know, we may get a vaccine in record time. You know, if 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 resources and scientists are are given that uh, sort of backing, things things can be achieved in a much quicker time than any of us had imagined. No, but uh, no, but absolutely. The the um, we said that we couldn't stop flying. Um, we said that we couldn't do all these kind of things, and look mm-hmm. what happened. Boom! Overnight, we stopped doing a whole lot of things, and we did other things. That was because we realized we, we, that we had to do something. The really frustrating thing with the environmental crisis is that people don't realize the seriousness of it, and so they're not prepared to do something quickly enough. And that's why, as Colin says, it really falls down to us as communicators to get this across, that, that the environmental crisis makes COVID, I'm sorry, look like a very, very small issue. Uh, oh, yeah. I know COVID is huge for many people and mm-hmm. huge for all of us, but it's tiny compared to what's coming down the track in 10, 15 years' time. And um, if we can do what we've done to try to beat COVID, we can beat the environmental crisis, but we just have to do these things and we have to do them quickly. Well, I think I do want to get talk a little bit more about what... Uh, needs to be done uh although the film is pretty um pretty um um pretty straight to the point uh and gives us a lot of a lot of solutions in terms of what what needs to be done in order to avoid um this uh worsening crisis and then ultimately what is um potentially a uh human extinction and um I think, as uh, David says, it's it's really about us. Tr- forget about trying to save our planets; about us saving ourselves. Um, but I wanted to get to the project because this is uh, we've kind of touched on this already. But uh, I mean, whose idea was this to uh, because to actually let's do a retrospective uh, nominally of of David Attenborough's life? I, I'll chip in here. It, it's. Um... Like a lot of great ideas, it came about with us all chatting. Mm. And uh, Alistair, Colin, and I, yeah. and David. And, um, and suddenly the penny drops, and you suddenly think, ah, this is what we should be doing. Uh, and, um, and, you know, Dave, David had never really wanted... David's all about the subject is far more important than him. He's actually mm. a very humble man. And to persuade him to say, no, we're going to put you front and center, that this is actually going to be really you, your wetness state statement, you know, was, I think, quite a difficult thing for him to, to kind of take on. Mm-hmm. But he, he could see the logic and he could see that it might make a difference. And so in the end, it boiled down to him and him deciding that he was prepared to go down this road. Okay. And how do you go about telling, I mean, telling this story? I know you, you, you know, an experienced filmmaker when it comes to making nature films and, and factual. Um, but, uh, you know, you start in Chernobyl, which is an interesting way to frame it. Uh, whose idea was that? I, I think it was Johnny, I think it was Johnny Hughes, who mm. um, was the co-director with, with us. Um, 
But we had filmed in Chernobyl uh, for the Our Planet series. Okay. And so we, we, we knew something about it. And uh, again, I think in a kind of a brainstorm, we actually worked out that it was a sort of, it was the perfect um, parable to go with what's happening with the environmental crisis. The fact that people could live in civilization in the perfect kind of world. And suddenly an accident happened that took away their ability to live in this place. Mm. And we suddenly thought, wow, that's sort of what's happening with environmental crisis. Yeah. A big accident is happening, which is going to take away our ability to live in this place. Mm. And then when we kind of built on that, and then the other key thing about Chernobyl is, is that actually, although humans left, nature carries on. Yeah. And so the moral of the story is that actually our civilization and what have you may not be able to survive the changes that are coming, but nature will find a way and be able mm. to carry on. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's quite a thought. And it, it's, it's, it's that fundamental thing. I think as Colin said at the beginning, human civilization has only been able to happen in the last 10,000 years. Us humans, anatomically modern humans, have been around mm. for 200, 230,000 years. Right. Only the last 10,000 years could we get out of being hunter-gatherers. And in 10,000 years, we invented agriculture and put a man on the moon. Yeah. That is what stability does for humans. Mm. That's why humans must never let stability go. Never. Because we don't, we don't thrive in an unstable planet. And you, you mentioned uh, um, David Attenborough's humility, um, and we've already discussed his amazing energy levels for a 94-year-old man. Um, Colin, what was it like for you to work with uh, what I imagine is one of your heroes? Yeah, yeah, you're quite right. He's one of my heroes. And um, even now, I've been working with him for about 15 years on various things. To yeah. work this intensely on a project where he was often recalling elements of his career, in particular his career, to a degree his personal life, but mostly his career, was extraordinary. And um, one of the sort of techniques we used in the film was, um, particularly because David's such an accomplished presenter, people are so mm. used, he's so used to being on camera, people are so used to seeing him on camera. Um, the director of photography, Gavin Thurston, created this mirrored camera box um, where effectively David could see the person that was interviewing him and having a conversation with him coming down the lens at, at the camera. So you've got this very sort of relaxed conversational mm. experience and to be able to, you know, I, was, I was there for one of the, you know, one, one of the days when David was just talking and remembering things and reflecting on things. And what was most extraordinary about that is he would have this big recollection of a moment in time, let's say when the Blue Planet film crew first filmed Coral Bleaching and right. he, he didn't really know what it was and nobody really knew, well, nobody knew why it was happening. Um, and then he'd suddenly turn it into this laser perfect sentence. And just the genius of the man to be able to flip an entire story that many of us would spend minutes waffling about and just fill it down to this perfect thing that made sense to anybody and got the hairs going on the back, you know, backy. Yeah. And it just, it's proper talent. It's, yeah. it's experience and talent combined. And it was, it was a joy to watch. Yeah, I, I certainly know something about waffling, but I think, um, I mean, does he write this does he write his own lines? I mean, or are these prepared or does he just, you turn the camera on and this comes out of 
out of him what we see on, on the screen. There's, there's bits and bits. I mean, some of this um, was recorded literally over several days of asking him questions and the directors asking him questions and him reflecting and responding. And so some of those bits where you see him against the black backdrop um, yeah. are, I mean, they're his words, obviously, but they're, they're not scripted. They're, I mean, he mm. knew he was going to discuss certain themes, but the exact words that came out of his mouth or what he was reflecting at that moment. Mm. And others, of course, are where his voiceover is scripted and, and right. written. Um, but there's a blend of the two. And I think it's really nice to break how you normally see David. It's not. So I, well, I, that's, I, that's what I thought was very interesting to see him, as you said, but, you know, I had the, the black backdrop. That's a very different way of seeing David Attenborough. Um, did, he, uh, did he resist that or did he uh, kind of understand why that was a, a, a good technique to use in, in this situation? Because we're used to seeing him with gorillas in Rwanda or, you know, cavorting with penguins, <laughs> you know, this sort of thing. I think one of the things that people forget, and certainly I, I, I wouldn't have known before working with him, was you assume because he's 94, he's not into technology. In fact, the opposite is true. He's uh, by nature, I mean, he's a trained filmmaker, trained producer, has been for years. Yeah. So when somebody like Gavin came up with a different way of presenting this and yeah. different ways of interviewing him, he was, he bought into it from a filmmaker's perspective from a producer's perspective as opposed to an individual and he knew that that would really work for the storytelling so no he completely embraced it mm. and yet uh you're talking about technology i mean keith what strikes me and i, I please take this the right way I, the film has a certain simplicity to it i would say that we're in an age where documentaries have can have loads of animation and graphics and spe almost special effects. But this is pretty much David on camera, wildlife footage, which I know is easier. It's, you know, it's, it's not easy to get. But, um, and then a few titles that show the, some of the, you know, the statistics about population and carbon and uh, the, the, the decimation of, of wilderness areas. Was that sort of a, a concerted uh, uh, effort on your, your part? Absolutely. Simplicity in this film was everything. Because mm. the real problem with the environmental crisis is the world is confused. And they just hear so many different problems, a cascade of different things mm. that don't seem to relate. And the idea of this film was to try to tell a very simple story and actually how everything just ties together. Um, as a set of consequences. And so once you tell a simple story about why we've ended up having a problem, mm. you can then tell a very simple story about how you can get out of the problem. And um, I also one a great, uh, uh, the, the chief scientist of WWF, Mike Barrett. Mm. I remember going to him and saying, Mike, this is when we started doing our planet. He said, Mike, you know, give me three things that the world needs to do to save the planet. Mm. And he looked perplexed at me and he said, Keith, there are only two, <laughs> carbon and food. Yeah. And actually, that was a genius. He can boil down the problems of the planet into two things. And, if we, and actually, I've gone over that carbon and food thing time and time again. And Mike's absolutely right. You solve those two issues, we get out of jail. And, and um, obviously, there's a lot to do to solve those two issues, right. but it's simple that. And so the whole idea of the film was, let's just keep it simple and let's make it a clear narrative so everyone knows what the problem is, how to get out. 
Okay. I think that's a very, very important point. Um, I was, I do have a question I want to ask you that's a bit off that, off that track and that obviously this come, has come out uh, this month, October, 2020. This is a year of pandemic. How were you guys affected by COVID-19 uh, in getting this out? Um, because it's quite an accomplishment to, to, to do that, or had you gotten most of the filming done before all the lockdowns hit? Yeah, the film we'd, we had, we'd finished. We were originally going to release it in April. Okay. That, was, that was the plan. And um, it's rather sad because we we're going to have a big premiere in the Albert Hall and right. cinema release and so on and so forth. And um, Colin and I watched this plan go up in smoke. Yeah. Um, but I think actually what's happened now is the whole COVID crisis has allowed people to reflect very much about what's important. Mm. And in a way, it's a terrible thing to say, but I wonder if it's a blessing in disguise that this film came out after that, this disaster has happened. Because I, I think it allows people now to actually understand what an unstable world means for them mm. but also to understand that actually we can solve problems if we go come together but the key thing we've learned from covid is the world has to act together if you're going to fix it you can't do it on your own mm. and you can't fix the environmental crisis on your own you have to do it together so i'm hoping in the long run that maybe this might help us in solving the bigger problem. Okay. And, and Colin, um, since you work for the uh, WWF, what is, I mean, to follow, what is the follow-up to this? I mean, it, do you have more films, bigger projects, maybe working with Silverback or, or what is the follow-up to this, to this film? I know you're still in the, it's still early days in terms of it's just been released. Um, yeah, so carrying on working with Silverback is definitely part of it, and we're we're working yeah. together on, on on other projects. This kind of communications challenge we've talked about, yeah. we know we keep it going for at least the next decade. So definitely working together. Um, but also then in the other part of our, our world is politically, as Keith said, we've got to solve this together as a world, and the whole world is under the auspices of the UN are getting together for a big new look at climate change, um, sort of follow on from the Paris Climate Agreement and on biodiversity, and it's all happening in the next 12 months. So in terms of us all acting together to deal with these problems, um, that's not the only way, clearly, you know, it's not only through governments, but there is a moment when the whole world is, has an opportunity to act in unison and, 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 and address this together. So we're, we're definitely going to try and use some of the momentum from this film towards that. Okay, and when is that... Uh that big uh, meeting happening. You said um, so, uh, so there's a, there's a, there's two of them. There's one on nature on biodiversity, um, yeah. which is happening in in May next year in, in China. And there's one that's happening on climate change, which is effectively the follow up to the Paris climate agreement, um, which okay. will be in, the UK in, uh, in November next year. So you, so the WWF is working hard to, uh, besides making all of us who have Netflix subscriptions realize, uh, making governments and policymakers aware of of the the dire nature of of this uh, situation. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But also the ways out of it, and actually yeah. um, that it's very achievable. I think one of the great things about making this film with Silverback with Sir David is um, that even policymakers 
want to see these films. So we've had the opportunity to, obviously not in the same way we would have done before COVID to screen them, but um, we know many heads of state, many government leaders, many business leaders have seen these films and uh, this film in particular, but our, our planet before it. Um, and seeing that public reaction to it, seeing it themselves with their families, we've had numerous messages. It touches people, it does. I mean, people respond to what their kids, their kids respond to watching the film with them. It's, it's, it's the reality of it. So yes, yes we are. And, and for both of you, I mean, I think you've pretty much said it, but uh, what do you want the lasting message of this film to be? Uh, for me, it is um, recognize that we're in a crisis and come together to do everything you can to enable the changes to happen that need to happen. And I know Colin talked about this before, but I think the main thing is have your voice. You know, the things that are happening to this world, which are bad things, are unnecessary. Um, not getting out of the problem is unnecessary. Mm. So have your voice and make sure that um, your voice is heard so that we do solve it. And it's not just for us or for our children. It's for all the thousands, billions of people who are going to follow us. Exactly. Because we are the generation that is stuck in this moment where we can either fix it or destroy it. And so it's a huge responsibility on our, on our generation. We're the only generation in human history that's had this re responsibility. And we have to fix it for those that follow us. Yeah. Uh, even for ourselves. And um, I feel passionate about that. Yeah, and I think that was very well done in terms of um, having David talk about someone born today, yeah. what they were likely to see in the next 100 years. Because then you, it gets people thinking, even if you're thinking you're so selfish and you don't care about, you know, I'll be dead before any of this stuff happens. I mean, what about your children or your children's children, you know? And the thing is, what we, we, we have set in, in train a geological process. Now, if you study geology, you know, once you have a geological process playing out, it doesn't solve itself in 100 years. It doesn't solve itself in 1,000 years. It solves itself in hundreds of thousands of years. And so un, an unstable world can, and we know this from what's happened in past extinction events, can take eons to sort itself out. So that means everyone who follows um, is in our hands. And, and um, it's a very, very profound moment we sit in now. And this film is really there to try to let people know. And as Colin says, these, these, these two conferences that are coming with the UN, which hardly anyone knows about, his, historically in a hundred years time, they'll look back on them as the most important meetings that humanity ever held. And they'll either look back on them as saying, wow, they did it. They fixed it. Or they totally let us down. Yeah. And that was the end. And so, you know, it's, it's such an important time. And communicators like us need to yeah. do whatever we can. I reminded of something on much more pedestrian, but it was a financial crisis. I remember someone in the Obama administration saying, uh, never waste a crisis. And I think... <laughs> You know, there's, if you want to look at it from a positive, put as positive yeah. on this, I mean, so much could be achieved by all this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think everyone thinks that fixing this is all going to be, we're all going to have to become poorer. We're all going to have to live in terrible lives. No. Yeah. 
there's jobs in fixing it. There's all mm. sorts of opportunity in fixing it. And there's a better world to live in. And so it's, you know, it's a win-win. It really is. Well, and I know, uh, I think, Colin, you've got a bit of an economics background and sort of business uh, background as well. I mean, there are opportunities in, in this. There are huge opportunities. I mean, like in economic terms, this is the greatest market certainty of all time, right? We know we are going to have to flip our entire economies to become more sustainable. And we're going to either do it in a slightly controlled way, sort of on the faster version of the trajectory we're on now, or we're going to do it in a panic in a few years' time. Um, But one way or another, if you're in the business that solves battery storage for renewable energy, or you come up with new ways of of dealing with waste, or you're a community that manages your fish stocks better than the others, you're going to have huge benefits. And on the flip side of that economics, if you think about things like clean air are one of the biggest killers of us as humans, it's the biggest environmental crisis we face on a week-to-week basis is, is, yeah. is air pollution. Yeah. We will gain out of all of this clean air. We will save health services and economies billions. We'll gain better water, better food, stable growing seasons, all of those things that businesses rely on to thrive. So um, it's, it's totally a no-brainer. The problem is, of course, lifting ourselves up from the day-to-day to address it, but independently, it's a no-brainer to, to, to embrace this. Okay. I think, um, I think you've made, both of you have made the case extremely well. I think the, I, <laughs> uh, I, I think the film has done uh, very well. Um, and it's hard to believe, I think we're coming up on the end of our time uh, together. But uh, I, I had watched this film uh, thinking uh, this might be uh, Sir David's swan song. But in listening to you tonight, I'm beginning to think uh, that's definitely not the case. Uh, if he can keep going, he will keep going. Is that, uh, maybe we can end on that note, I guess. Well, you know, the first series I worked on with David Attenborough, I was a 24-year-old researcher. Yeah. Uh, it's for the BBC. And some of the people in the BBC says, oh, well, I reckon this is probably going to be, you know, Attenborough's last one. <laughs> I was 20, this was 1983. Yeah. And um, so ever since then, so don't, don't ever, anyone don't ever bet on it's being David's last one because and we've had hundreds of David's last ones and I'm, I'm sure there are a lot more to come. Well, well, hopefully that, I hope that is the case. I, I definitely know that. And I definitely know my children do too. So um, um, I guess maybe that's uh, we, I think we've made, as I've said, I think we've made the case for what needs to happen. Your film does. And maybe that's a good place to, to wrap up here. Uh, so I just want to thank you both uh, Colin Butfield and Keith Scully for coming on to Factual America. Uh, it was very much appreciated. The film is David Attenborough, A Life on Planet Earth uh, by, um, uh, well, on Netflix. So um, can I give a uh, thanks also to, um, um, to all our listeners and a shout out to This is Distorted Studios in Leeds, England. Uh, And to remind you to please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. 
Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.